Welcome to The Mini Brick, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, March 17th. On today's show, as we have all week, I want to talk about all of the action that's unfolded at Indian Wells. Our men's round of 16 action officially in the books, of course. We had two women's quarterfinals yesterday as well. I want to touch on each of those matches here on today's show. Of course, not much to break down from a tennis perspective. Iga Svantec, Simona Halep dropped a combined three games on their way to the semifinals for Sviantek. Her first decisive win of the tournament. She had dropped her first set in her first three victories yesterday. A 6-1-6 love win over Madison Keys. Then was closer at times than that scoreboard would indicate, but comprehensive victory for Iga Sviantek. Ditto for Simona Halep. Petra Martic couldn't hurt her. And of course, I want to break down the mechanics of the Halep victory and also contextualize where Simona Halep is at right now in her career. You look at the numbers for her since the start of the 2020 season. And I know this is a point we have harped on a couple of times here on the podcast this week. I do think Simona Halep is still in the prime of her career. I want to lay out the case for that argument here on today's show. Of course, Again, we had eight men's round of 16 singles matches at Indian Wells yesterday. Plenty of fun action for us to discuss in terms of the three setters we saw unfold. Thrilling victory again for Taylor Fritz. Back-to-back matches, he's pushed to a third set breaker. Back-to-back matches, he gets the job done. Fritz into his second consecutive Indian Wells quarterfinals, this time with a 7-6 and a third set win over Alex Diemenauer. I know I talked about Fritz yesterday, but... I'll get into it a little bit here on today's show. I also want to talk about the Demon Hour aspect of the equation as well. Of course, another guy we have talked about here, and how often do we see this? When players have momentum on their side, you're just going to see continued success from all of them. Certainly, Mirmir Kasmenovic is a guy we have talked a lot about here at the start of this season. Huge run for him. He was the beneficiary. I don't know if it's beneficiary is not the right connotation, but given Novak Djokovic wasn't allowed to play at the 2022 Australian Open. Kesmenovic got the lucky loser instead of a match with the number one seed. Made the most of that opportunity. He has rode that wave of confidence all the way into the Indian Wells quarterfinals yesterday for Kesmenovic. One of, if not the best win of his career. Three-set victory over Matteo Berrettini where, to be frank, he was in control from start to finish. I'll explain why. I'll explain where the success from Miamir Kesmenovic is coming from on today's show as well. Of course, there were some top seeds we have to touch on. Rafa Nadal was pushed to the limit against Riley Opelka, a 7-6-7-6 match where, look, Opelka broke Nadal in that match. And after, you know, Rafa's talking about the state of his foot, how healthy is he at this point of the tournament? Don't want to speculate on that health as, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a direct line to Rafa. I can't ask him this question directly. But, you know, you look at his form. Was this the best Rafa performance? Are there signs that perhaps there is a chink or two in the armor here uh, for those looking to offer Rafa his first loss of the season at Indian Wells? Maybe, maybe not. That's something we can explain explore on this show. And then, you know, again, your other winners, Rublev, Dimitrov, Nori, of course, Carlos Alcaraz, so impressive yet again. Want to try to touch on everything on today's show, of course. I do believe I will have a guest lined up this weekend to break down all of the Indian Wells action. I may even have a special guest for all of you tomorrow on this podcast, a true 
truly perhaps the returning champion of all returning champions planning to join me tonight on the podcast. Hopefully his schedule uh, doesn't force us to have to reschedule that show. But again, Indian Wells coverage for all of you Crack Rackets fans this weekend as we try to thoroughly enjoy the home stretch of part one of this Sunshine Double. Of course, Miami Open, another 1,000 level event coming up next week. We'll have our coverage of that kicking off next week as well. But again, on this show, I want to focus on all of Wednesday's results at Indian Wells. Of course, the reason I'm able to do that day in, day out here on this show is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, the support we get from our Crack Rackets Patreon family as well. And of course, the support we get from our friends over at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Any equipment you need to upgrade your own game, there's only one place to turn to. It's with our friends at Tennis Point. Why wouldn't you? They got everything you need. Wilson, Head, Babolat, Yonix, you name it, they've got it. Shoes, shirts, shorts, socks. They've got it all. You know, again, strings, dampeners, anything you might need to accessorize or outfit, a better outfit, your tennis game. You can find it all in one location. You go to tennis-point.com today. Eventually, you're going to buy something and on checkout, use our promo code CR15. Why? Because not only will you let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders, exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, that's tennis-point, symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. One other note quickly, and I apologize. I know you all want to hear Indian Wells breakdown. I just do want to talk about some of the things we have going on here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, another weekend means two more college tennis cross-court coverage, uh, cross-court casts, excuse me, for us here over the course of Friday and Sunday. On Friday, we'll have 11 SEC tennis matches for all of you to enjoy. You can find those matches on each of the team websites. Of course, Sunday on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, we will have a plethora of Big Ten action that includes number six Baylor headed to Ann Arbor to take on my Michigan Wolverines. Of course, I'm excited to be on the call for that one, but so many great college tennis matches matches this weekend. And again, we're in that lull period. Yes, championship weekend at Indian Wells, but that means there's not too many matches happening throughout the day. And of course, if you're on the East Coast of the United States or you're on European time, you're on Asian time, whatever it may be, uh, of course, you know, there's only one place uh, you all can turn, or excuse me, of course, you know, there's uh, plenty of action going on across the globe at any given moment. So of course, if you all need any action to help get you between these Indian Wells matches, we have it for you here at Crack Rackets with our college tennis coverage. With that said, and I do apologize there, clearly lost my train of thought for a second, got a text message from a guest we have coming on the show later today. I will fully acknowledge to all of you listeners, it distracted me momentarily. But with that in mind, you don't care about the plugs you came to hear about what's the latest happenings over at Indian Wells. Let's discuss that now. And again, we had the top half of our women's singles draw compete in quarterfinal action yesterday. They were too decisive, dare I say, blowout victories for Simona Halep and Iga Swiatek, And I want to start with Simona Halep, who earns a 6-1-6-1 victory over Petra Martic. To be honest, when you look at the match, there was just very little Martic could do to hurt Halep throughout the course of this one. And yes, Martic did ultimately hold in her opening game, but right off the bat, Halep was extending rallies, putting you know great depth on her return of serve, just neutralizing anything Martic throws at you. And certainly on this surface, Martic 
Martich going to be able to play the angles, have a little bit more time, her slice knifes that much more effectively through the court just to put you in awkward positionings. And of course, she plays angles so well, which is what you need to do on a slower surface to create open space for yourself to attack. She's also comfortable moving forward, taking the ball early out of the air. Halep didn't let her do any of that, and it started on the return of serve for Simona Halep, who is returning as well, and according to the numbers, better than anyone in women's tennis right now. You look over the last 52 weeks of play via the Tennis Abstract Stats Leaderboard, break percentage leaders right now uh, on this leaderboard. Over the last 52 weeks, Simona Halep's in first place, 46.5% of the time she is breaking her opponent's serve. A, that's a ridiculous number. Imagine that. You are breaking serve essentially half of the time your opponent is serving. You look for Simona Halp, the fact that she is returned to the top 25 in hold percentage as well. As such, she's winning a ton of matches, and I actually do think it's, you know, undervalued how successful Simona Halep has been since the start of the 2021 season. You look for Simona Halep, or excuse me, since the start of the 2020 season, and yes, that includes a couple of pre-pandemic months, but you look for her, you know, right before the pandemic hits in 2020. She makes the semifinals of the Australian Open, loses 6-5 and five to Garbine Muguruza in a match that, if you recall, you know, again, she had I think overall in the match, what was it, 12 breakpoint chances that she wasn't able to convert just over and over again, had opportunities to get over the hump in that match, wasn't able to do it. Of course, after that, she goes on to win Dubai. She goes on, uh, you know, and is in immense form heading into Indian Wells, heading into Miami. But of course, that's when the pandemic hit. That's when play is paused. And Halep, early on in the pandemic, wasn't comfortable traveling over from Europe. So she wasn't able to play at the U.S. Open, wasn't a part of that Naomi Osaka, Victoria Azarenka, just miraculous three-week run in New York that, of course, all of us enjoyed so much, particularly given what the previous six months had entailed for all of us. And, you know, the run of Halep's success she had had, 2018, 2019, winning the titles that she did, being the number one player in the world, that slips to the back of your mind when your first new memory after six months of no tennis is watching Naomi Osaka dominate the way that she did in New York. And then, of course, you transition to the clay court season, and it'll be the most forgotten title probably in tennis history. Let's not forget that Simona Halep ultimately wins the title in Rome in the warm-up to the French Open in 2020. And, of course, in, in lieu of traveling to New York, she played a clay court event in Europe in Prague right when the season resumed in August. She ends up winning that tournament as well. Again, she wins Rome, gets wins over Muguruza in three sets, gets a win over Pliskova in the final as well. She was steamrolling on her way to the Roland Garros round of 16, gets a straight set win over Amanda Nisimova, 0-1 in the third round in that November French Open. But then she ran into the buzzsaw. That was 2020 French Open Iga Sviantek. And Sviantek, of course, unseated at the time outside the top 20 in the rankings, earns a 1-2 victory over Simona Halep. That certainly, with the additional context of the past two years, makes far more sense now than it did in that moment. But that was sort of a bubble burst for Simona Halep in terms of the momentum she had built over 2018, over 2019, 2020, because she had always been a top five player, right? But she had never firmly cemented herself as the number one player in the world as her true ascension to the top of the game overlapped with another just 
career-defining run from Serena Williams and the ascension of Naomi Osaka and the Ashley Bardis of the world and all these one-off runs that have happened happened during the peak of Simona Halep's powers. And of course, that does tell a narrative that Simona Halep's best, as exceptional as it was, and you know, I had this discussion with Alex Banchilla when we had him on the show about a month ago, a, a guy who knows Romanian tennis as well as anyone asking, is Simona Halep overrated, underrated, properly rated? I think she's underrated. Just the sustained success she's had, her consistency and persistence of being a top 10 player, it's immensely undervalued how difficult it is to do just that, right? And you know, she does get over the hump and does win a couple of major titles and did have her moments where she does rise as high as number one in the world, you know, which she does for the first time at the end of 2017. You look for Simona Halep now, doesn't turn 31 years old till the end of September, right? She's 30 years old. And with the development of modern technology and the way we've seen careers extended, this would be you know, not quite post-prime, but the tail end, right? That final season, season and a half, sometimes it's extended to 32, 33 years old. Obviously, Serena Williams is the exception, not the rule. Ditto with the Djokovic, Nadal, Federer's of the world. And yet Simona Halep, if you look statistically as, as close to her statistical prime and playing as well as she has ever played, and I think the eye test in this Martic match where, again, Petra Martic just, and this is indicative of Petra Martic, but she just didn't have a weapon to hurt Halep with. Neither did Serana Kirstea. Coco Goff at times was taking the forehand early on the rise, moving forward, getting to the net, but unless she placed her approach shot perfectly, Halep was coming up with the passes, and Halep was hitting her return of serve deep enough to prevent Coco Goff from early attacking opportunities, and Halep really, or, you know, Goff only really got to attack if she got a look at a sitting up Halep second serve, which Halep minimized in that match, or, you know, again, when she landed her own first serve, and even when she landed her first serve, a lot of the time, Halep did a good job of getting the point back to neutral with her her return. Again, over the last 52 weeks, she is number one in break percentage. And you look for her since the start of the 2020 season, she's 62 and 16 overall. That is a ridiculous 79% win percentage against opponents outside the top 20. She continues to rack up victories, 52 and nine overall. That's a 85% win percentage. And again, four of those losses to opponents ranked outside the top 50 and to include uh, 20, excuse me, include losses to Danielle Collins, who's now inside the top 20, Garbine Muguruza, inside the top 20. Iga Sviantek, what, number three, number two in the world right now in the live ranking. She also lost a match uh, to, I believe it was, yeah, Jess Pagula when she was outside the top 20 as well. I'm not excusing any of those losses. I'm saying contextually, certainly they look better now than they may have at the time. She continues to beat everyone she's supposed to beat. If you don't have an elite weapon to hurt her with, if you don't have some sort of skill, because I don't know if anyone can match her physicality right now. And that is what really from an eye test perspective makes you think Simona Halep is still in the prime of her career. It's the way she moves in and out of corners, tracks down an extra ball every time, the depth she can produce. All she's got to do is get her racket on the ball. It's Brooksby-esque, right? If Simona Halep gets her racket on the ball, she's going to generate depth. She's going to at a minimum, throw something neutral at you. So good in the outer thirds of the court. And again, if you try to play at her game, well, now you've she's lulled you to sleep and she's going to sneak a winner up the line on you, particularly that backhand up the line. So explosive. She uses her speed to sneak forward as well. That is not new information, right? This is not a new breakdown. I think anyone who listens to a daily podcast about tennis results has a fairly accurate assessment of what Simona Halep does well. 
Here's the thing. She's continuing to do all of those things well. And again, the numbers back her up. She's winning 65.9% of her first serves right now. Her career average first serve win percentage, 63.3. So she's winning 2% more of her first serve since the start of that 2020 season. And again, last 52 weeks, she's even higher than that at 67%, but it's just not the biggest sample size. That's why I wanted to go back to 2020. Um, You know, again, a testament to the fact that she is serving as well as she's ever served. She's also winning, you know, 49.1% of her return points over this stretch of time. Over the last 52 weeks, she's at 48.6. Again, over the last 52 weeks, she's number one in break percentage on tour. She's still a percentage point above her career average. Uh, when there have been some very good seasons, obviously, for Simona Halep. Now, when was the last time she had a signature run? probably that 2020 Rome event, right? That's probably what you got to go back to because, yeah, she's had some good results. Australian Open quarterfinals last season and round of 16s at the U.S. Open at the Australian Open this year. Yeah, she won a title at Melbourne 1 to start the season. But this is probably her first signature win since making, I mean, that French Open round of 16 against Iga now in retrospect looks like a signature match, but this is her first big run since Rome 2020. I guess my broader point here is that it's an, it's an it should feel like it's an unexpected run for Simona Halep at this point because yeah from a rankings perspective she had dropped outside of the top 10 of the world but you look for Simona Halep now with this result again into the semifinals here at Indian Wells she's back into the top 20 which is hilarious to say out loud but Simona Halep back into the top 20 currently at number 19 now in the rankings which is again a major victory uh given just how difficult it is to move up the rankings. It's hilarious. If Simona Halep wins this Indian Wells title, she'll be all the way back up to number 13 in the world. So she still will not have cracked the top 10. And yet, I think the big thing, if you're a Simona Halep fan, or if you're just monitoring her from a rankings perspective, is how few points she has to defend in the summer because she was banged up last year. And you look for her, there's no French Open points for her to defend, no uh, Wimbledon points for her to defend. Oh yeah, she won a major at both of those events. So certainly feels like Simona Halep will be top 10 come the end of the summer once we get back to the hardcourt swing here in North America. It would things would have to go very, very poorly. Either an injury or again, yeah, things just suddenly break down for her, which if we've learned anything from the past eight, nine years of Simona Halep, that just doesn't happen. Halep's playing as well as ever before, and now I'm thrilled to get to see her play against Iga Swiatek, who we spent a lot of time talking about here on this week's show. And I don't want to repeat myself. I'll simply say for Iga to lose first sets in her first three victories here at Indian Wells and put that performance together against Madison Keys, laughable. And the 20-year-old, she's still not 21. Again, the 20-year-old Iga Swiatek now with this result. I mean, she is, deservedly so, up to a new career high in the live rankings of number two. She's the second best player in the world right now. And you look for Iga Swiatek here this season. Again, she has only lost once. And this is where I love the tennis abstract ELO ratings because you look at the yearly ELOs. Oh, excuse me. She's only lost once. She's lost three times here um, over the course of the season. But she's number two on their ELO ratings as well. And you look for her. Who are her losses to? Well, she loses to Ashley Barty in the Adelaide semifinals before the Australian Open. Barty goes on to win the Australian Open title. She loses to Danielle Collins in the Australian Open semifinals. Collins makes the Australian Open final. She loses to Ostapenko 7-6 in the third in Dubai. Ostapenko goes title and semifinals in the Middle East. 
She's lost to three exceptionally informed players throughout the course of this season. Other than that, she's beaten everyone else. And you look for her, she bounces back, right, to win the title in Doha. And, you know, who has she beaten this year? Well, you just, again, let's start naming names. She's beaten Kasekina twice. That on its own would be, excuse me, she's beaten Kasekina three times. She's beaten Tossin once. She's beaten Azarenka once. Now let's get into the big names. She's beaten Sabalenka, Sakari, Conteve, Kerber, and now Keys here, one and zero. What more is there left to say? I'm not going to do the since August 2020 number because you already know it. She's got an absurd win percentage, over 80 percent against opponents ranked outside the top 20, and now she's winning over 60 percent of her matches against top 20 opponents as well. She's winning over 50 percent of her matches against top 10 opponents. The Madison Keys first serve didn't phase her forehand in all at all in this match, and. The depth she was able to generate on the return of serve is what neutralized everything in this match. Again, if you want a quick tactical breakdown, 6-1-6 love for Sviantek. You know, Sviantek just was able to get that first serve at the feet of Madison Keys. And sure, Keys had some opportunities to play plus one tennis, but she had to maximize those opportunities. And that's when the unforced errors started to compile for her. And just, again, unless she got a look at a Madison, uh, at Aniga Sviantek second serve, I don't know if Madison Keys played any natural offense in this match because that's how good Sviantek was on the return of serve, and that's how good she was at taking away the things Keys wants to do best, which is hitting big, of course, from the center of the court. Sviantek was so smart. Just first ball to the open court. Second ball, if I've generated enough open space, cross court to where Keys is not. If not, let's hit behind her. Let's keep her momentum going side to side because, of course, if you can challenge Keys to move laterally, that's where you're going to create some opportunities for yourself in. Shmiantek did from the start to the finish of this match. And now we get what has been, one, I don't want to say one of the best rivalries in women's uh, in women's tennis because I don't think that's fair to say given this is only their fourth matchup. But given the context, again, of the French Open match that they played back in 2020, given the Roland Garros match they played in 2019, a 1-0 victory the year before for Simona Halep in the round of 16. Of course, they played the Australian Open last season, was a three-set win for Sriantec in the round of 16 there. They only play in juicy moments, and a semifinal of Indian Wells certainly qualifies as juicy. And here's the thing. Again, Sriantec, as as eye-popping as her weapons are from both wings. What's ultimately so impressive about her is the physicality she brings alongside of it, her ability to move side to side, the fluidity, the weapon she has, again, the explosiveness of her forehands. But, you know, again, Halep can match that physicality. And Halep would be, I mean, look, if when Sviantek's hitting the forehand cleanly, down that ball's at the shoulder of Simona Halep. Now life, of course, is not only difficult for Halep, but would be difficult for any sort of player. But... It's a really fun matchup because, you know, Halep's going to be able to absorb the first blow of Simona Halep. My question is, though, what does Simona Halep do to hurt Iga Sviantek at this point? Because Sviantek is locked in physically, and now she gets a day off before they play this matchup on Friday. I mean, again, I... Halep is striking the ball extraordinarily well. She's turning defense into offense, but to be on your back foot against Iga Sviantek for the course of two hours is extraordinarily difficult to do. She's going to have to land a ton of first serves, you know, be aggressive, take that ball on, uh, up and on the line and uh, on the rise. And, you know, the fun thing is she can exchange backhand to backhand with Sviantek. She's got to be the one who's more willing to go up the line early in the rally. Ditto with the forehand. Can't be afraid to go forehand up the line as well. 
it's just going to be a really good match. Two players with very few weaknesses on court. Uh, it, it, grab your popcorn, folks. Should be about two hours of tennis. And you look right now via our friends at Tennis Abstract. Uh, not shocking, I suppose. Or at least I don't think it's shocking to see uh, that Iga Svantec, 62% favorite. That does feel a little bit high, but that's indicative, again, of how many high-level matches she's played, particularly of late. She's a 62.1% favorite to Halep's 379 Also favorite via the odds makers right now as well. So, that is your semifinal on the top of the women's singles bracket. It is going to be Sviantec versus Halep, of course, later today. Sakari taking on Rabakina. Badosa taking on Kudermatova. With that said, though, let's flip gears now and talk about all of the men's action happening at Indian Wells. Again, a lot of these guys we've talked about recently, and I hate forcing you all to listen to me repeat myself here on these programs— But look, Taylor Fritz continues to shine through at this 2022 Indian Wells. And you look for Fritz, the thing that's been so impressive is just the physicality he has brought in particular to these last two rounds of play. You look for Taylor Fritz and, you know, again, for him, and I know I already mentioned this, but was a 3-6, 6-4, 7-6 in the third set victory over Alex Diemenauer. That, of course, comes on the back of his 7-6 in the third victory over Munar in yesterday's third round play. What has worked so well for Taylor Fritz? Well, of course, I mentioned this yesterday as of now. If you look at his numbers, I believe 23-9 and nine since the start of Indian Wells last season. He's serving and returning like a top 25 player in, in men's tennis. And again, there's 13 guys over the last 52 weeks who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now, this would be since October of last season. But if you watch Fritz play, I think fundamentally from the eye test— from a tennis perspective, not from a physical perspective, from a tennis perspective, try and identify the weakness in Taylor Fritz's game. Now, of course, you'll say, well, he's a very bad volleyer. Okay, he can allow himself not to volley. Now, you could argue tactically with how well he hits the ground strokes, how, you know, how much force he hits behind those balls, how heavy they are, that if he could move forward and put away a floater and take time away from his opponent more easily, wouldn't that help him continue to get better as a tennis player? Yeah, I think it would. At the same time, how do you attack someone's volleys? You don't want to bait Taylor Fritz forward because if you leave him a short ball, particularly an inviting short ball, he does punish that ball so well that now it's guaranteed you're going to be on your back foot. It's guaranteed you're going to be scampering quarter to corner to corner to corner. And that was the case for Alex Dumanauer through many stretches of this matches. Now, credit to Dumanauer, who did go up a break to love in the third set, and I actually think is hitting his plus one forehand more decisively and perhaps better than ever before. And he takes that ball short, short hop to the opposite direction as his plus one ball exceptionally well for a guy who hits both of his ground strokes pretty flat. And, you know, the backhand such a condensed backswing for Demon Hour. doesn't generate that much pace on that side, but it does a better job of generating depth on that side now than he used to in his career. I think he incorporates the slice now more than he used to in his career. I think there's more knife on that slice as well. And obviously, Demon Hour on the run is just a different breed and, you know, the elite of the elite. And he's going to force you to play an extra shot in just about every rally. And he did that to Taylor Fritz at multiple times in this match. But Fritz stayed calm. 
Fritz stayed collected. Fritz, particularly early in the tiebreak, was willing to play 10, 15, 20 ball rallies until he did have Demonauer either leaving him a short ball or thoroughly stretched, and then he would move forward, and he would hit the big approach shot, and that measured attitude, it gets the job done. Once again, for Taylor Fritz, who's into a quarterfinals now for back-to-back years here at Indian Wells, and of course, you look for Taylor Fritz in the live rankings, already cracked the top 20 here this week, but you look for him now by backing up his result, making the quarterfinals. Taylor Fritz up to number 19 in the live rankings. One more victory here gets him all the way up to a new career high of number 16 in the live rankings. He would also pass Riley Opelka and retake his, uh, restake his claim as the highest ranked American male singles player in the world right now. Deservedly so. He can hit the backhand line. He can hit the backhand cross with depth, with angle, with topspin, the forehand. I mean, the whip he can generate on that ball. You can feel when Taylor Fritz is turning up the pace. And sometimes he does try to flatten it out and he'll miss that ball long or he'll miss it in the top of the net. But it's the right sort of miss on the right sort of opportunity. And I do, again, think physically, especially on a slow, hard court where, you know, because Clay just doesn't have his balance under him and his ability to change directions is that much more compromised. But on a hard court where he is clearly most comfortable as a mover, he's going to put himself in positions to have success. And he's going to track down some extra balls. And he has progressed physically to now when he tracks down that extra shot. You know, it's not a desperation slice. He's doing a little bit more with the ball. Or if he is slicing the ball, there's just a little bit more depth on the slice because he has a little bit more time to get there. He continues to will himself forward. The volleys, even if incrementally, do get better every time you see him play. Fritz is playing good ball right now, and thus he knocks off Demonauer in three sets. Uh, again, Demonauer, you look for him. I think this is a positive run for him. Back into the top 30, number 28 as we enter part two of the Sunshine Swing, but you know, seated at slams just puts you in a better position to have success here, and for Demonauer, really doesn't have much def- to defend between now and his run in Eastbourne uh, come the grass court season, just given the struggles he had last last year. So tough result for Demon Hour, better victory for Fritz, who advances again to another Indian Wells quarterfinal. We're now for Taylor Fritz. Fascinating matchup, winnable matchup, according to the Tennis Abstract dra- uh, draft forecast, the Tennis Abstract singles forecast, excuse me, as Taylor Fritz, 74.2% favorite against a very much informed Miamir Kesmenovic. Kesmenovic is just striking the ball so well right now on the return of serve in particular. And, you know, the depth he was getting on his forehand chip or forehand block return of serve in particular was, you know, against Matteo Berrettini, surprisingly outstanding. And obviously against Matteo Berrettini, holding serve is the key because you're just not going to have that many opportunities to break serve. You look for for Mimir Kesmenovic. Two of six on his breakpoint chances, but he got the one break he needed in set one. He got the one break he needed in set three. He wasn't broken in set number two or at any point throughout the duration of this match. You look for Miamir Kesmenovic, that break percentage back where it belongs. You look for him now 23.6% over his last 52 weeks. Of course, if you look for him exclusively here in 2022, that break percentage jumps all the way up to 27.8%, which would rank ninth amongst top 50 players. 
You look for Miramir Kesmenovic, number 61 in the world, entering this event with this quarterfinal run. He's back into the top 50, number 48 in the world. That just makes life incredibly, so much easier for you moving forward. Now you're getting into Masters events on your own ranking, not having to play qualifying. Now you're again, just a, which is all what it's all about. Now you're able to set your own schedule however you deem fit. That's all you can ask for as a 22-year-old. And again, for me, Amir Kesmenovic, this is something I've talked about before, but he's currently holding serve 84.3% of the time here in 2022. Not only would that be a career high by over five percentage points, that number would be a top 25 number amongst top 50 ATP players. So right now, Miamir Kesmenovic in 2022 would be a top, you know, I think a top 20 club, I believe, if you look at his percentages, because I think that hold percentage would rank 16th. So he'd be in the top 20 club, one of only seven guys you could say that about here in 2022. That's how exceptional Miamir Kesmenovic has been. And again, you look at who the wins are against. Beats Tommy Paul, who's obviously had a breakout season this year. Beats Sanego to get to that fourth round in the Australian Open. Beats Sanego again. Again, a couple of lower-ranked wins, but good wins on Clay and Rio to make the quarterfinals there. He had to come through qualities to get into the main draw in Rio. Then quarterfinal Santiago. Now here gets wins over Brody, Chilich, Vanderson, Sculp, and Berrettini. Now sets up the quarterfinals here against Taylor Fritz. And, you know, on the flip side, obviously, if you're Taylor Fritz, you're like, yeah, I'm not playing a seed. Let's freaking go. If you're Miramir Kasmanovic, you're like, hey— I'm playing the 20 seed. I'm playing a guy who's like two years my you know senior, but a guy who was my contemporary in the juniors, a guy I consider very much of my generation. This is a generational sort of match, right, for Kasmenovic. And physically, again, why has Kasmenovic had this sort of success? Well, what's the weakness for me, Amir? If you're making a game plan to try and break him down, you know, back in the day, you might say, okay, I'm going to capitalize and I'm going to go after his second serve. I'm going to go after both his first and second serve and just be aggressive as a returner because he leaves that ball short, where the hold percentage, 84.3, indicative of the progress he has made in particular on the first serve. Yeah, his second serve sits up short at times. Everyone's second serve sits up short at times. You have to go after his second serve return. At the same time, you used to say, well, serve to his forehand. It's a little bit of a bigger backswing, and, you know, he'll go to the chip block return. He'll leave that ball short. You get a plus one ball. Certainly that happened at times against the elite serve of Matteo Berrettini, but that's going to happen to everyone at times against Matteo Berrettini. I just think from a ground stroke perspective, from a physicality perspective, it's really hard to break down the game of Kasmenovic, whether it be the vol, you know, again, the forehand, the just the, the action he can generate on that ball, the drive he can produce on his backhand wing as well. He is comfortable moving forward, comfortable as a mover and just, you know, I wouldn't say elite, elite speed, but movement will never be an issue. He's certainly in the very good qual- uh, category as a mover. I've been immensely impressed with Kesmenovic, who again, 15-5 and five now here in this 2022 season, back into the top 50 of the live rankings as well. He earns one of your three-set victories on uh, yes, or in yesterday's action at Indian Wells, and those were actually your only two three-set matches on the day as we move through some of the other Indian result, uh, Wells men's results here to close today's show. Let's just rapid fire, I suppose, through them all. God, is Carlos Alcaraz good? And I know that's astute analysis, right? This is what you came here to think. What does Alex have to say? He's watching all these matches so that I don't have to. Carlos Alcaraz is really freaking good. Thanks for telling me something I didn't know. Carlos Alcaraz is really freaking good. He out-athleted Gael Monfils yesterday. Do you know how hard it freaking is to out-athlete Gael Monfils? I would argue it's damn near impossible. Even though Gael Monfils isn't the 26-year-old, 27-year-old he once was still... 
elite of the elite as a mover, as just the pace he can generate in these ridiculous corners of the court. And of course, 0-0, the inside out, 120 mile per hour forehand winner he hit to clinch the opening hold, indicative of that fact. But go watch the second point of the match where Alcaraz hits this ridiculous on the run forehand. Or go watch, you know, the break point in the first set where Alcaraz, you know, has Gael Monfils so far behind the baseline because that's how heavy, that's how big Alcaraz hits the ball. That Carlos Alcaraz successfully drop shots Gael Monfils. Again, Alcaraz hits the ball so big that he pushes Monfils six feet behind the baseline, but he hits the drop shot so well that he's still able to pull it off against Gael Monfils, and he has Monfils indecisive, and again, he would win the forehand-to-forehand exchanges. He matched his patience, and I thought he had better drive on the backhand as well, and then once he won that first set, it just, it broke Monfils' spirit because Monfils played an excellent first set, and, you know, he got himself out of a bunch of breakpoint situations and just seemed to have Alcaraz at bay. Until he didn't. And now Alcaraz has a set lead. And go watch, no, no, this is what it was. on In the second point of the match for 15-all, Alcaraz hits an on-the-run forehand outside the, the, uh, or outside the singles alley, so into the doubles alley on the court. He then hits to win the point because Monfils, an ill-attempt drop shot. Alcaraz hits from that do-side doubles alley, runs around the ball that's drop-shotted in the ad-side service box, and hits an on-the-run forehand winner. The athleticism, the footwork, the precision to be able to pull that off. Again, I know I keep making this joke. Is he the greatest of all time yet? Absolutely not. There's such a long way to go. But he's not the not greatest of all time yet. Like he is absolutely, if he stays at this trajectory, we're at the first bullet point, but the first bullet point is on the path. Like I, I like to think it's pretty Luka Doncic-y. Right? I mean, Luka Doncic is not going to surpass, more likely than not, not going to surpass Jordan, not going to surpass LeBron James, right? How about Patrick Mahomes? Well, it's not quite Patrick Mahomes either because that would be Alcaraz has already won a Grand Slam. And then we can start doing the Mahomes, Brady, Alcaraz big three comparison that will certainly be featured on this show at some point uh, when we have Gil Gross here next. But I mean, Alcaraz is just a freak, like in all of the best ways. Just there's nothing on a court he seems incapable of, and he earns a straight set victory over Gael Monfils. Again, let's move through. Cam Norrie, two and four over Jensen Brooksby. Brooksby remains the most entertaining watch right now in all of tennis, but Cam Norrie's on that elite play- tier right now physically, and he's not the most, you know, explosive, fleet of foot sort of guy. But physically, he's in the mix, whether it's from a strength perspective, absorbing your first blow with that condensed backswing, and now the pace he can generate on that wing and just the depth he's consistently generating on that backhand side. Of course, the forehand has always had incredible action, and on this Indian Wells in particular, court in particular, it's that much more effective. His serve has become that much more lethal as a weapon as well. The guy's just clicking on all cylinders, and he takes away the thing you want to do most. And what Jensen Brooksby, of course, wants to do most is make the match attract me. He wants to rip your soul, rip your lungs, rip your heart out of your body and just have you searching for answers and questioning why you even became a tennis player in the first place. And Nori was like, no, 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 that's my thing. Like, oh, you think that's cute, but you know, like you're 20 years old, 21 years old still, and I'm a grown man, and 
yeah, that's, and he played as such. It was just extraordinarily impressive uh, for Cam Norrie there, who ultimately, again, a 2-4 and four victory. He's down an early break in that second set, and credit to Brooksby, who brings that energy, breaks him right away. The Brooksby forehand is a weapon now. Just the snap he can get on that ball, how comfortable he is hitting it big now, or how much more frequently he is hitting that ball big. Of course, he's always been solid on the backhand wing. The drop shots remain impeccable can put his serve on a dime and, you know, again, is going to make a million first serves as well. Of course, you keep wondering for Jensen Brooksby, is the bubble going to burst? Are people just going to figure him out? And the fact that he doesn't do anything from a eye test standpoint in an elite fashion, will that ever come back to bite him? Well, the larger the sample size gets, the more inclined I continue to be to say the answer to that question is no. But physically, and this is where you remember he's 21 years old, he's just not a 26-year-old yet, the way Cam Norrie is. And I think Norrie turns 27 next month because I believe he's a fellow 95er as I am. And it's just like, again, physically, Cam Norrie's spent days, months more in the weight room in total accumulated time than Jensen Brooksby has right now. And again, Norrie's a guy in the peak of his physical powers. Brooksby still has a boy's body. And I do think those sorts of things matter. And so again, Norrie was better than Brooksby at everything throughout the course of the match. And that's why he's the defending Indian Wells champion. And that's why he's on the precipice of making his top 10 debut. Uh, but I, I don't feel any poor, more poorly about that Brooksby match, uh, about Brooksby coming out of that match. And, and if anything, as always, I am more encouraged. Uh, let's move to the bottom half of the draw before I get to Rafa Pelka because I want to end on that just quickly. Rublev's just got it. Like, again, mentally, physically, emotionally, it's all clicking for him right now. He goes down a mini break 4-3 in the first set breaker to Hobie Hercats, comes back to take that tiebreaker 7-5. So, again, he's down a 4-3 mini break. He wins a couple of points. I think he wins one of the points back on serve, wins two on his own serve, and then he breaks Hubie, who offers up a backhand error wide to clinch the first set. And, you know, I think there was only one break of serve, and it was that final game in that second set. And Rublev just connected on two good forehand return or two good returns, excuse me, one forehand, one backhand. They both land at the feet of Hubi Hercats and he commit, you know, produces two unforced errors in the net. And there's your break of serve and there's your match. And, you know, for Rublev now, what, 12 matches in a row that he's won and just physically has seemed to have taken a jump to another level. Is so much more comfortable going backhand to backhand. Doesn't force himself to hit forehand in the ad side of the court. Of course, still seeks that out aggressively, but it's not forced anymore. It's in rhythm when he has the opportunity to find those forehands. He gets better and better at a move, as a mover, better and better as a volleyer, makes more and more first serves. I think the most impressive part for Andre Rublev, who turns 25 at some point this year, I believe, if he hasn't already, is that he continues to get better despite as good as he was when he was first, you know, healthy again in 2019 and 2020 and just, you know, he continues to still find ways to improve, which is what you have to do to be amongst the greats in tennis. And then, of course, Grigor Dimitrov, just these courts are so great for him. Hard courts, which allows him to show off his speed, slow, high bouncing, gives him that much more time to get into his stuff. I mean, again, it's a match against John Isner, so you're not going to get to see him flex all of his muscles, but go watch the tiebreak. Go watch a couple of the backhand down the line passing shots he hits to get the ball by Isner. Just was ready for the Isner onslaught, was able to withstand it. Ultimately, 6-3, 7-6 victory for Grigor. He's back into the quarterfinals of Indian Wells for the second consecutive season as well. 
And now you look for Grigor. It's funny. Rublev, 70% favorite to Grigor's 30%. By the way, Alcaraz, 58.8% favorite, speaks to the form of the young Spaniard. Despite as good as Cam Nori has been, he's the defending champion. And yet, Alcaraz, by the ELO rating projections, your favorite to win the match. Grigor Rublev is going to be fun because, again, Andres just played so much tennis. I know he had the week off between the Middle East stretch and Indian Wells, and so I do think he's fine, but it's going to be just interesting. It's a lot of matches on his body here to start the year, and, you know, again, there's just a rejuvenated quality right now to Grigor when they're both playing good tennis. I mean, I favor Rublev just because that weapon, the heavy topspin of the Rublev forehand and, you know, again, the drive of his backhand into the Grigor backhand, the pace he plays with, it's going to be hard for Grigor to cheat over because Rublev will keep him honest down the line. And, you know, again, because Rublev hits the ball big, if you get caught cheating down the line, you're just in trouble. (sighs) That's going to be a fun one, though. Uh, I do think that Grigor keeps that match pretty close. I do think ultimately, though, Rublev advances... And then, of course, you've got Rafa, 7-6-7-6. He advances over Opelka, overcomes a break deficit, gets the break back for four all in the second set. Riley played outstanding. Wasn't just the serve, where, of course, he continues to serve so well, holding over 96% of the time, historic start, et cetera, et cetera. But the Rafa ball jumps right up. You know, the heavy topspin of Rafa plus these slow, high-bouncing courts, never in your life is it better to be seven-foot as a tennis player than in those moments because the ball was jumping right up into the Riley Opelka strike zone. And Opelka used the Rafa topspin on his backhand wing and just drove through that ball, would play it flat because he's like, thanks for the topspin, Rafa. Now I'm going to go big cross. Now I'm going to go big line. Go watch. What was it? I think four, no, because it was right before they changed sides. No, but, but it wasn't six all. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, two, three in the breaker. No, no, no. Two, four in the breaker, three, four in the breaker, one, four, whatever it was in the tiebreaker, Riley hits this falling back forehand on the rise, uh, forehand down the line winner that you're just like, no seven foot human should be able to be that athletic and that coordinated at the same time. And I actually thought Riley, again, from a tennis perspective, played an excellent match, had his opportunities, was up a break in the second set. Rafa Rafa came up with some ridiculous passing shots. And there were times Riley just was a little bit tentative because how could you not be after Rafa hits the on the run passing backhand flipper cross court or the on the run forehand down the line by you for the 17th time. And you're just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not moving forward unless I'm absolutely certain I can rip a winner. At the same time, Riley played Nadal about as evenly as you could have expected him to. And, you know, if you're Rafa Nadal, Riley was hanging with you from the baseline at times, and that's just not something you'd expect to say. At the same time, Rafa hasn't lost this season. He served well, protected serve, was able to get the break back in that second set, and was able to get off the court in straight sets, taking the two tiebreakers over Opelka. There's a reason he's undefeated, folks. He gets more and more efficient. Yes, he complained about his foot, but if he's healthy, I fully anticipate he will continue to make a run. Here at Indian Wells, and God willing, we get an Alcaraz Nadal semifinal because isn't that the match all of us deserve at this point? With all of that said, there's your action on Wednesday at Indian Wells. Of course, we will be back tomorrow to break it all down as well. If you want to see what ha- what else is happening across the tennis world, go check out our ATP Challenger-centric podcast with Damian Kuz. He's actually going to be joining me here on the Mini Break podcast as well. Might be a two-mini break Thursday here uh, for all of you listeners to talk about some of these standout young performers as well as what's happening right now at the Challenger level because there's some intriguing stuff. But of course, college tennis coverage, Friday 
Friday, SEC, Sunday, Big Ten. We're going to break down each of those conferences on podcasts as well. We've got our deciding point episodes for all of the action, Division I men's and women's college tennis, all of that content available on the website, crackrackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the GSP Crack Interviews podcast, and our YouTube channel to ensure that you don't miss out on any of the action. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. With all of that said, for super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.